0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. If you're visiting with us, I want to echo what Jeremy's already said. We would love to meet you, love to know who you are. And I'm going to be standing right over there in that hallway where all the crying is coming from. (laughs) After service, I would love to meet you before you leave today. There's only one exit, so you have to get by me. Some of you, some of you slip by pretty stealthily. I mean, you're pretty good at getting by without me saying hi to you. But I'm going to do my best to say hi to you today. And isn't that noise? Isn't that uh crying baby, young young child noise? Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Isn't that awesome? It is you know what that says is it says there's life here. I love life. I love the sounds of life. If you want a quiet church, there are a lot of churches you can go to. Where they would love to hear the noise of young families Have you thought about that? So if you are here and your children are sitting with you That is good. This is called part of their discipling. This is their discipleship They are learning That the people of God gather around the word of God and if they get a little restless in that They're kids It's okay. Nobody notices as much as you notice. I guarantee you so, don't worry about it. It's okay. It's all right. And we love hearing the noise. We love hearing the signs of life all around us. And, and again, there are a lot of churches where they would give anything to hear those young noises. And so, we want to we appreciate that and relish that. Well, we're going on a trip today, we're going to go on a journey today. I was telling my three year old that this morning. Because he was saying, Dad, I hope you don't, he, he didn't say it that articulately, but he said, Dad, I, I don't want you to preach very long today, this is essentially what he was saying. He said, Dad, I don't preach super long, and I said, son, it's okay, we're going to go on a trip today, it's going to be great, we're going on a, on a field trip, and that's what we're doing, is we're going through the book of Acts, where you're going to begin today, Paul's second missionary journey, Paul's second missionary journey. We saw his first missionary journey with Barnabas in chapter 13 and 14, and now at the end of chapter 15, he embarks upon his second journey. And today, as as I told you right at the beginning, at the very beginning of our journey through the book of Acts, I said there are four things you need to be looking for on every page, okay? And I'm going to rehearse those for you now. There's four things you need to be looking for on every single page of the book of Acts. And, and, and here they are. Number one... You want to ask yourself, where is the gospel message going? Every single page, every single chapter of the book of Acts, the gospel is going somewhere. And you want to pay attention to that. You want to ask yourself that question, where is the gospel going? The second thing you want to ask yourself is, who is seeking to oppose it? Just like on every page the gospel is going somewhere, on every page there is someone or something seeking to oppose the gospel progress. Third, you want to ask yourself, how is God overcoming the opposition? Because just like the gospel is going on every page and the gospel is being opposed on every page, on every page God is overcoming the opposition. And then fourth, you want to ask yourself, what are the results of God's victory over that opposition? What does it result in? What are the effects? What are the impact? What's the impact of that gospel message prevailing? And on every page, what you're going to find in the book of Acts, is that the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news of God's kingdom being established and mediated upon the face of the earth in the name of the Son king the name and the work of king jesus who himself has died for his people and has been risen again in victory over sin and death, and he's given that victory to his people, and he's commissioned his people to go out and talk about his kingdom and his rule and his victory, his death, and his resurrection to grant repentance and life to all who will receive it. That gospel message is going. And it will be opposed at every turn, But that opposition will not win the day. God will prevail. And his victory will bring great benefit and blessing to the gospel message. You and I still live. You and I still live in that reality. The gospel still goes forth today. The gospel is still being opposed. The gospel is still prevailing. And the gospel received still has great benefit and blessing as God multiplies his people. We're going to go on a trip today, and we're going to look at the end of chapter 15 and all of chapter 16. It's a big chunk of scripture. And so, what I'm going to do is, I'm not, I'm not going to read the entire section of scripture here at the beginning. We're going to read through it as we go through it. And as we go through, I've, I've called this message, if you like titles, I probably need to entitle more messages. People like titles. Uh, I've titled this message Vignettes of Victory. Or as my wife would say, vignettes. Maybe that's how you pronounce it. Vignettes. Vignettes. I'm just going to say vignettes because I'm an American, okay? So, Vignettes of Victory. A vignette. You know what a vignette is? A vignette is a small picture. Okay? It's a small picture. And. That's what we're going to see today are several small pictures, in fact, four small pictures of how God is bringing forth his gospel message, the gospel mission, in spite of opposition. He's prevailing at every step. And we're going to look at these vignettes of victory, starting... In chapter 15, verse 36 through 41. Here in chapter 15, if you have your Bibles, please keep your Bibles open and look at them today. Chapter 15 and verse 36 through 41, what we see is that God has designated a new team. A new mission team to take forward the gospel. Look at the circumstances here, verse 36 through 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas... Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Okay, so Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back to the churches we we visited or the churches we established on our first missionary journey and see how they're doing. That makes sense, right? They want to see how they're getting on. Are they remaining in the faith? Are they thriving spiritually? This is what you want to see of your kids, right? When they launch when they launch out of your house, and one day that's happening. You're going to launch your kids out. You want that phone call, right? You want that phone call letting them know, or letting you know how they're getting on. I hope they're doing okay. They don't call as often as they should, probably. Paul and Barnabas, they want to get back to those churches and see how their spiritual children are getting on with the gospel. Are they being persecuted? Are they persecuted? Falling away from the faith. They want to go check and strengthen those churches. Verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Here we see Paul and Barnabas, two godly men, two men who are well-intentioned, two men who want to carry out the gospel mission. This text doesn't give us any indication of sin involved. This, this text doesn't tell us if there's a right side and a wrong side. Maybe you're the type of person that always thinks there has to be a right and a wrong, right? There has to be one who's in the right and one who's in the wrong. Well, I think here they're both probably a little wrong, and both probably right. They both could probably make valid arguments for why they want to... Barnabas wants to take John Mark, and Paul wants to make valid arguments about why he would leave John Mark behind. We know Barnabas. Barnabas, he's an encourager, remember? I can see Barnabas wanting to give another opportunity to John Mark. Remember, John Mark had left them in Pamphylia. He wants to give another opportunity to John Mark, but Paul... Paul, he says, we don't have time for this. He wants to be effective in his mission. He wants a team that he can depend on. And so they have a sharp disagreement. That term, sharp disagreement, means they had a real argument about whether or not they should take John Mark. There is... Sometimes in our ministry, sometimes in our ministry, we will find it is impossible to get along. Sometimes there's just a difference of philosophy or opinion. Sometimes there's a difference on how things ought to be done. It's not necessarily about right or wrong. It's about what you're convinced of. Barnabas and Paul are convinced of different methodology here and this this difference leads to them having to divide here we see as we've seen already in the book of acts some real potential for problems real potential in division for the gospel and its effectiveness i mean can you imagine two men godly men well-intentioned men having such an argument that they would have to divide what a threat to the testimony of the gospel isn't it and yet we see do you see god's goodness here do you see god's grace in this Say, what are you talking about When, when you read the bible do you see are you ready to see god's grace and goodness in scripture do you see god's goodness here because in this division In this sharp disagreement, God sovereignly moves to create two teams for the sake of the gospel. He he takes their division and their inability to get along and he says, I'm going to use this for the furtherance of the gospel. Now there are two teams, we're going to be doubly effective. Barnabas takes John Mark and goes to Cyprus. And Paul appoints or affirms Silas, he takes Silas and he goes to Syria and Cilicia over land. And what we will see with Paul is that the Lord has something in store for Paul in this mission team. He wants to take care of the churches in, in Cyprus, but he also has new efforts that he wants Paul and Silas to undertake. God uses the unideal. He uses the division even here of his faithful servants to accomplish his will. The strong division between the two godly men leads to a formation of two mission teams, and God's gospel prevails. A couple of thoughts here as we move on. As we minister together, and, and maybe you've experienced philosophy philosophical differences with others in the church Maybe you've experienced this you've been around long enough where you've seen two parties who are both well-intentioned But can't seem to get along and decide to divide and it breaks your heart One of the reasons one of the reasons why we took so long Just be really candid with you. One of the reasons why we took so long in planting trinity church We took over a year and a half of preparation and waiting I had several times people say, well, let's just go. We're, we're already ready to go. Let's go. Why do we want to wait? Because we want to signal as best as we can that our planting Trinity Church was not a division from Faith Bible Church. It was not a division. We, we, we weren't seeing things separately and just had to get away from each other to go on in effectiveness. It was, it was a harmonious plant but not every church plant is like that, is it? Sometimes people plant and it's out of division. What do we do with that? You know what I've I've committed to do with that? I've committed to say, you know what? I wish those people would have stayed, but you know what? God is sovereign over this. And these churches that have been started, we're going to pray for them. And we're going to pray that God uses them for gospel furtherance. God's going to bless that. He's going to use that to take His gospel where it needs to go. So, some commitments here, some realities here as we move on. First, we commit ourselves to unity. Should we commit ourselves to humility? We commit ourselves to deferring to one another, preferring one another instead of ourselves unity and humility, we also commit ourselves to reasoned conviction. Do you have reasoned conviction for what you believe? Maybe you have a different philosophical approach, but is it reasoned out? Do you have the reasons why you believe or think the way you think? Do you know why you want things done the, the particular way? Or is it just something you're, no, you're, you're used to? That's why you want that. So we commit ourselves to unity and humility. We commit ourselves to reason, conviction, and how we do things. There's different levels of importance in how we do things, absolutely. And sometimes our reason, convictions, and beliefs about how things ought to be done come into conflict. Sometimes that happens. And when that happens, we recognize That sometimes, even with the commitment for unity and humility, sometimes separation is necessary. Between two well-intentioned God-honoring parties. A few weeks ago, I mentioned Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint and their work for the gospel after their loved ones had been killed in the jungles of Ecuador. And and a couple of you came up and said, did you know they didn't get along? I, I did, in fact, know that. I knew they didn't get along. Did you know Rachel St. and Elizabeth Elliot worked for a couple of years together and then they could not work together anymore? They were so strong in their convictions about how ministry ought to be done that they couldn't work together anymore and they had to go their separate ways. Again, both of them went on to have fruitful ministries for the gospel. And so we rejoice in that. We commit ourselves to unity and humility and reasoned conviction. We recognize that sometimes separation is inevitable or unavoidable. And in that, we commit ourselves to not sinning against those with whom we disagree. This is big. Do you know Paul, Paul and Barnabas have their relationship intact, even though they have separated? Later on, you'll find out. Paul still has much respect for Barnabas. And later on, he actually calls for John Mark to come and join him. Their relationship remains intact. And I think we learn from this. When we have to separate for differences and for effectiveness sake, we need to commit ourselves to not sinning against those with whom we disagree. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our division may be regrettable, but God is working through it. And we're not going to sin against each other. And then we glory. We glory and praise God for his sovereign purpose in all of it. Again, do you see God's goodness and grace in this? He's going to take his gospel out. And even with man's frailty, he uses it for his purposes. So we see a new team formed in chapter 15, 36 through 41. Next, in Acts 16, 1 through 5, we see we're introduced to a new team member. Look at it there, chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 1 through 5. Paul, with Silas, came also to Derby and to Lystra. You remember Derby and Lystra on the first missionary journey? Lystra is where he was stoned and left for dead. He returns back there again. It's incredible. He came to Derby in to Lystra. He wants to see how the churches are doing there. A disciple was there named Timothy. Introduced to Timothy here for the first time. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek, As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Here we meet Timothy. Timothy has a reputation with all the brothers there in that region. He is a good brother. He's a dependable brother his mother is a believing Jew, his father is a Greek, and so Paul wants to take him on his team, but Paul knows that Timothy, who at this point is not circumcised, he's going to be interacting with Jewish people who need to hear the gospel. And so Paul asks Timothy, To be circumcised. Now, I want you to grasp this. I want you to grasp this. This is it's incredible. Here is a grown man who is willing to be circumcised for the sake of gospel witness. And it's right on the heels. In fact, they're carrying the message of the decision that was made in Acts 15. That circumcision is no longer the mark for God's people. Just so you're remembering, circumcision was the mark that God had given to Abraham to signify who his family was. This was the mark that Israel took upon itself, physical mark that Israel took upon itself, to show that they indeed belonged to the people of God. The decision in Acts 15 is that Gentiles no longer had to receive that mark to be part of God's people. Amazing shift in the storyline of scripture there in Acts 15. Circumcision was no longer required to be considered part of God's people. Timothy's not circumcised. His father's a Greek. And yet, for the sake of ministry effectiveness, Paul asks him to get circumcised, and Timothy is willing to do it. He doesn't have to, but for the sake of gospel witness, he does. This is a living example of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians nine, nineteen and following. Remember that passage 1 Corinthians 9:19? Paul says that he is free. He's free from all men. And yet, he says, "I have become a slave and servant of all that I may win some." This is the incredible reality of what it means to be a Christian. In our freedom, we owe nothing to any man. We have been freed. We are no longer under bondage. We are no longer longer under the law and keeping the law. And yet, as a Christian, we are to willingly become the servant and slave of all men in order that we may win some. Are you willing to use your freedom for the sake of others and others hearing and receiving the gospel? Are you using your freedom that way? To bring others to an understanding of the gospel message? Now, as soon as we start talking about freedom... Right, we talk about our liberties. We talk about our freedoms. People talk about grace and how we are no longer under the law and we're under grace, and so we can we can do these things. You know, we, we can we can have a glass of wine. There's no rule against that. We can participate in things that you know other other Christians in past eras may have looked down upon, but we know, hey, we're free. Do we use our freedom for an opportunity to the flesh? Or are we using our freedom to willingly serve others for the sake of the gospel? What we see here that Timothy does is extraordinary. He's willing to limit his freedom in order to serve others. Is there anything in your life that would hinder others in coming to the gospel? I thought about this this last week in my own life. As I relate to people in my family, I relate to people in my workplace. Is there anything in my life that would hinder others in their ability to hear the gospel? I have a responsibility to live under the law of Christ. Christ. What is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is the law of love. I, I'm I'm not so interested in my freedom in what I can do now as I am in winning people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel marches on through the sacrificial love of Timothy. He lays his life down. He lays his freedom down for the sake of others to hear the gospel. Then, in number three, vignette number three, we see that there's a new team formed. We see there's a new team member. And then in chapter 16, verse 6 through 10, we see that there's a new mission field. The gospel is going to Europe. Look at it there in verse 6 through 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, it's an important word there, immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul's team is traveling through Phrygia and Galatia. They're looking for places to advance the gospel. And they are stopped twice. They want to go Preach the gospel in a particular area, but God closes the door. We see here that God is sovereignly, He is in His good providence directing where the message is going. Well, doesn't He want the message to go everywhere? Oh, He's taking it everywhere, but He's doing it according to His plan and His timing. And he is directing the steps of the messengers as they go. I I wonder as we read this little vignette, as we look at this little vignette, this is the question that came up to me. Are Are we willing to have our plans checked or changed by the sovereign providence of our Lord? Are we willing to have our plans checked or changed according to the sovereign providence of our Lord? We have great desires. I I hope that you have desires for the gospel. I think when I say, are you willing to have your plans checked for the sake of the gospel, or are you willing to have your plans checked by our sovereign Lord? I think a lot of times, you're thinking about other plans you have In the context here, it's the plans for the gospel and the preaching of the gospel. Do you have plans? Do you have desires for the preaching of the gospel? Do you have a desire for the gospel to go out? And are you willing for those plans to be checked or changed? I think because we're sitting here talking to this particular group of people here in Spokane Valley, I think of a lot of you who are training to be missionaries at Moody Aviation. Or maybe your desire is to be in ministry. These are good desires. These are are good wants. I want to remind you just of a few things before we move on. A desire to minister, a desire does not indicate a seal of approval. A desire does not in itself give you the approval to go and minister in a place. Paul and his team, they want to go and they are told no on two different occasions. Well, doesn't God want his gospel to go everywhere? God wants his gospel to go where he wants it to go. And he has closed the door here on Paul and his team. A desire to take the gospel somewhere doesn't indicate that God has given his seal of approval on your ministry or on your desire. The question really for us is this. Are you ministering the gospel where you are? Are you ministering the gospel where you're at right now? I told somebody this the other day, this old saying, and it was the first time they heard it. So I thought, maybe I need to say this publicly. Did you know a a plane trip does not make a missionary. A a, a ride on a plane from here to somewhere else doesn't make you a missionary. If you are not a missionary today where you're at, you're not going to be a missionary somewhere else. (coughs) Are you ministering the gospel where you are? Or are you sitting around twiddling your thumbs hoping that somebody gives you an opportunity or hoping that somebody opens the door for you or hoping that somehow God will move mountains so that you can do what you want to do. No, he has sovereignly placed you where you are for the sake of the gospel. Preach and minister the gospel where you're at. And be happy with God's sovereign providence and his direction. While he is not giving us visions in the night, I don't think he's giving any of us visions in the night, While God is not audibly speaking to us, He is providentially ordering our steps. They were seeking to go anywhere, everywhere that they could go, and God directed them. God's sovereign plan is best. And we need to trust This is actually what Christian maturity looks like. We need to trust where God has us and that where he has us is best for us. God sends his word where he will and it is often not where we think. He gives the mission team here an open door in Macedonia. A call to Macedonia, northern Greece, over in Europe. And so we see number four, a new church started in the city of Philippi. A city of Macedonia. Let me read verse 11 through 15. And we'll take this in the three different sections and then we'll be done Starting at verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Semothrace, and the following day to Neapolis. From there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. So, a place where people would gather for prayer. They're looking for a place to minister and to speak the gospel. It says there, verse 13, we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So there are a group of women who come together there at the riverside. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now notice, she's a worshiper of God, as was Cornelius, as was the Ethiopian eunuch, but they have not been brought to salvation yet. Here is Lydia. She is a worshiper of God. She's even going out and meeting for prayer there by the riverside with the others. But as they're speaking, look at what it says in verse 14 there. She's a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Do you you know why God said no to those other two places? Do you know why God said no, Paul? I don't want you to go preach the gospel in those places. Because God had Lydia here in Philippi, who he was already drawing to himself. He was already preparing, and he sent a messenger or messengers to this lady here by the riverside. The ground had been prepared. And as Paul spoke, the Lord opened up her heart to pay attention, to hear, to receive the message of the gospel. He says no to the two other places because he has people that he's wanting to save here in Philippi that are ready. And God often leads, did you know that? God leads to where he's made preparation. The gospel will indeed go to those other places where Paul was not allowed to go, but they're not ready yet. We take his sovereign direction as he orders our steps. He is bringing us to people that are being prepared. Are you you noticing, are you looking around and seeing those around you that God is obviously working to draw to himself? One article I read this last week talks about Looking for those who are reaching out for God? Are you looking for those who are reaching out for God? Did you know in our context, here in eastern Washington and north Idaho, there are a lot of people who believe in God. And they take great pride in the fact that they are Christian people. Not like those people on the west side of the state. Not like those liberals. Right? A lot of people believe in God, but a lot of people are not converted. A lot of people would say they believe in God, and yet they have not experienced God's work in their heart to bring them to salvation. They have not repented of their sin and their self-righteousness. They have not humbled themselves and been brought to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You have people, I'm I'm just telling you, you have people all over your life who believe in God, and I think sometimes we pass by them as if they are converted and they're not. If I had a nickel for every time somebody said, "Oh, Oh yeah, they're a believer, oh yeah, they're a believer, oh yeah, they're a believer. Why, how, why do you say that? I mean, if I, if I really believe that, all of Spokane is converted. It's not true. A lot of people sitting in churches right now all over this city who are not converted. And they're in your life. They're in your life every week. And they talk about God in generalities and you just let it pass by? because they say some good things. But have you ever asked them about their faith in Christ, repentance from sin, and faith in Christ? Have you ever pressed them on why they don't go to church regularly? Have you ever pressed them on why they're allowing unrepentant sin to go on in their life? You you see, you're surrounded by people who are open and ready, possibly, to hear the gospel message But because of our assumptions, we lose our opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Lydia is a worshiper of God, but she has not yet received the message. The Lord opens her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul in verse 15 after she was baptized, which comes right after faith, right? Repentance and faith. Baptism is how we signify repentance and faith. After she was baptized in her household as well, She urged us, saying, If you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She becomes the house where Paul and his team stays. She becomes the center of activity for the church there in Philippi. Her hospitality leads to a meeting place, a gathering place, for the church at Philippi. Moving on to the next section. Verse 16 through 24. Paul and his team run, run into some opposition, serious opposition. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Literally a, a python spirit is what it says goddess Delphi, they were believed, they believed that she was possessed with a spirit of a python, and this python spirit, it's an interesting note there, would give abilities to tell fortune, and to see the future. This girl had such a spirit and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling, She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed. I think that's my favorite verse in this entire section. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, he finally had enough. He turned and said to the spirit, All right, enough is enough. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So here is this young woman possessed by an evil spirit, a lying spirit. And with this lying spirit, she's going around saying, "These men are going to give you the message of salvation from the most high God." Well, that would be true, isn't it? But that association with this obvious demonic possession, this under this undercuts the gospel proclamation. And eventually Paul says, "That's enough." Come out of her. And the spirit does. The evil spirit comes out. But, it's not the end of it. Verse 19, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Then the crowd, the mob, right, joined in, attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Paul and Silas are unfairly treated. There is no due process. There is no trial. It is a mob mentality. They come and they strip them down. How how humiliating is that? They strip their garments off of them in public, in the public marketplace. Have you ever put yourself in their position, what what this must have been like? As the garments are stripped off them, they're lied about, they're stripped down, and then they are beat with rods. Rods. Has God forgotten about them? Has God left them? Did they take a wrong step? Maybe we maybe we shouldn't have come to Macedonia. Maybe this was the wrong plan. No, God sovereignly orders their steps. Not the circumstance they would have chosen for themselves. But this, this is what God does. God puts us in circumstances and situations that we would not have chosen for ourselves, because he is infinite in his wisdom and we are not. He knows where the gospel needs to go, we do not. He knows what he's doing, we do not. And he takes us to circumstances that we would not choose for ourselves, but God is saving in these circumstances nonetheless. They're brought into prison They're brought into the inner prison and fastened into stocks. And then the most remarkable passage here, starting in verse 25. Look at verse 25. So put yourself in their situation, right? Stripped down, humiliated, beaten with rods, lied about by greedy, selfish men. Verse 25. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. We could preach a whole message just on this section, right? Here's Paul and Silas. After they've been humiliated, after they've been lied about, after they've been beaten, they're sitting in stocks in the inner prison. This is not a good situation. And here they are singing in the sorrow. Singing in the suffering. They know that they are not there because of any sin in their lives. They didn't do anything wrong. They were lied about. They were mistreated. Their suffering is not a result of their disobedience or their sin. They also know that their God is sovereign. That their God has not stopped being in control for one moment of their entire situation. They know that their God is sovereign and that he is good and they know that they will be delivered. They know that they will be delivered. Maybe not delivered physically, but they know they will be delivered in the way that actually matters. Many of the early christians were not delivered physically when they were brought before the magistrates Many of them were killed many of them suffered unto death But in that they are delivered God is always working for the deliverance of his people Do You know, that's what he's doing through suffering and sorrow. He's delivering you Delivering you in ways that you don't even know you need to be delivered That is often why suffering and sorrow is so painful is because that that is the that is the impurity that's being refined out of us. That God is working to deliver us from. They know they're not mistreated for any sin or for any error. They know that God is sovereign. They know they'll be delivered, and in all of this, they seek to honor Christ. That's that's the only reason they can sing at midnight after they've been stripped and humiliated and beaten is because in their suffering they have one desire and that is to make much of Christ. And did you know, did you see that note there? The prisoners are listening. The prisoners are listening. These are actual criminals. These are actual criminals who are there who, who deserve to be imprisoned. And did you see God is actually preaching to them in the prison as Paul and Silas sing and pray to God. The prisoners, the criminals, they don't deserve the message, do they? God is bringing the message to them in the prison. They're listening. Did you know that people are listening to you in your suffering? People are watching you. People are listening to you. People are are taking note of how you suffer. What kind of God are you picturing to them as you suffer? This is a really important question for us, isn't it? These criminals are being ministered to. These criminals are receiving grace from God as Paul and Silas have been brought to them with the message Does your suffering make much of God? Paul and Silas were there praying, singing hymns. Prisoners are listening. And then at that point, look at it. And suddenly, verse 26, there was an earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Here the captor, the captor of Paul and Silas has become their caretaker. He washes their wounds, takes care of them, but it is he that has received the better washing. He has been washed from his sin. He's been cleansed by receiving the good news of Jesus Christ. In the next scene, Paul sits down and eats with the family there, rejoicing, rejoicing with the household that he had believed in God, that he had received the good news. It's at that point... When it was day, verse 35, the magistrates sent the police saying, let us those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. And Paul says, not so fast. They've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out to prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Why does Paul do this? All the way through this, these episodes, Paul demonstrates his wisdom and his discernment. Wise, yet harmless, He seeks to publicly vindicate the testimony of the gospel. They were were accused wrongfully. They were beaten publicly. They were mocked and humiliated publicly. and, And by their mocking and by their imprisonment, the testimony of the gospel suffers. And he says, no, no, no. I want everyone to know that you imprisoned us wrongfully because I want the testimony of the gospel to be lifted up. And I want all those people who are going to suffer for the sake of the gospel, I want them to see this message vindicated in their presence. I think that's what's going on. He says, no, you, you need to take this out publicly, and you need to acknowledge that what you've done is an error. This message is true. So So many more thoughts. Let me summarize. If, if, if you take notes, this is where you want to take notes. I'm just going to walk through it. The summary of all that we've read this morning and walked through, the vignettes of victory. Here, here's the main idea. I should have said it at the very beginning. Here it is. And the, the, You know the ants go marching one by one, hurrah? You know that? The ants go marching one by one, hurrah. That's, that song has been in my head all week long. <laughs> because... That's 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 the point. The good news of Jesus marches on. The message of the gospel marches on. It continues to go. In summary, four four summaries. Number one, the gospel mission is meant to go. In fact, it will go. Have you ever ever done plumbing at your house? Some guys who are really handy refuse to do plumbing. You know why? I'm not smart enough to not do plumbing. I try all the time. You, You know why plumbing's hard? Because water will go. Water will find a way. You can't stop it. It finds a way to go. It's a good illustration of the gospel. It's a good illustration of the gospel. The message of the gospel is like the water, it's going to find a place to go, and it's not going to be stopped. In fact, the gospel message is meant to go, it will not stay home, it will not be contained. It isn't meant, hear this well, the gospel message isn't meant to be huddled around. It isn't meant to be locked up for safekeeping. In fact, one of the primary ways to protect the gospel is to proclaim the gospel. The gospel sword is kept sharp by wielding it. The gospel sword is kept sharp by using it. When you start huddling around it, it becomes distorted and dull. It's meant to be proclaimed. It isn't meant to stay idle. The gospel mission is meant to go. Every force of hell and every opposition of man has sought to cut it off, but the gospel has prevailed. Read history. Read all of the people who have who have prophesied of the end of the gospel they're all dead and churches like Trinity Church remain and it's always going to be the case mainline denominations may fail Christianity in America may be made illegal that does not mean the gospel has ceased that does not mean the gospel mission and the progress of the gospel has ceased it will continue sometimes it's drips seeps Sometimes it's like waterfalls, but the gospel will go. Number two, I hope you've seen in all of these texts this morning, all these vignettes of victory. Number two, the gospel mission is all about God's sovereignty. The gospel mission is all about God's sovereignty. God's good and gracious providence will not be detoured. Division will be overcome and serve to further the gospel mission. Doors will be closed and doors will be opened by his sovereign will. God will provide the people he wants for the mission as he did Timothy and Silas john mark and barnabas he will provide the people that he wants and that he desires to go forth on the mission and then such an important point and we saw this with lydia lydia's heart do you see that verse 14 chapter 16 verse 14 the lord the lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by paul just having, I had a couple of conversations this past week on this point. It is the Lord who opens the heart to hear the message. It is the Lord that prepares the ground. It is the Lord that gives the ability to believe. And, and if we didn't believe this, why would we pray to him? If I really believe that it's man's work to believe the gospel, why would I pray to God? He can't override the will of man. You ever thought about that? People that want to emphasize the free will of man in salvation. You have made God powerless then because he cannot override the free will of man. I I don't believe that's the biblical depiction of God and his work in salvation. The Lord opens the heart. He causes to believe. He's the one that brings faith and repentance. His power prevails over spiritual opposition. We could not prevail, but he does prevail over spiritual opposition as we saw there in Philippi. And his providence takes his messengers where they need to go at the time they need to be there. He is working always to bring his gospel message to those who need to hear it. And he delivers at his own discretion. Again, when he doesn't physically deliver as he... He has not physically delivered many saints throughout history. When he doesn't physically deliver, he is still delivering in the way that matters most. And we know he's doing that work. Number three, so first, the gospel mission is meant to go. In fact, it will go. Number two, the gospel mission depends all on God's sovereignty, on his sovereign power. Number three, while the mission depends completely upon God's sovereign power, number three, the gospel mission is all man's responsibility. Did you know you live in a world where it's all God's sovereignty and yet we are completely responsible? That's the universe you live in. And if you say, well, that bends my mind. That just, I can't comprehend that. That's because it's because you can't comprehend God. This is exactly the truth. Gospel mission is all man's responsibility. The missionary. And really quickly, the missionary, if you saw this all the way through, the missionary is always seeking for the opportunity to get the gospel out. They're going to preach the gospel. If they're told no, they're going to look for another open door. And as soon as they receive that open door, I love that, immediately Paul receives the vision, and the next morning he says, we got to go, guys. we got to go. We've received our call. The missionary is always seeking the opportunity The missionary, the one being sent, is always needing to make decisions that are wise and discerning of the situation. Looking for open doors. Looking for those who are responding and reaching out to God in your midst. And looking to glorify Christ in whatever situation you find yourself in. The missionary... Is always ready to yield his freedom for the service of others to hear the gospel, becoming the slave, the servant of all, so that we might win some. And the missionary, you and I, we're missionaries, by the way. You and I, we are called to boldly proclaim the gospel, even in the face of opposition. In fact, we should expect opposition. Why don't we proclaim the gospel? Why don't, we, why don't we proclaim the gospel? Did you know that we, as God's people, we can actually become the ones who oppose the gospel and, and the gospel's forward progress? Why don't we proclaim the gospel? Well, some, some of it's laziness and disobedience, surely. Some of it's that we're lazy or that we're disobedient. We're not lazy when it's something that we want to do. We're not, we're not lazy when it's something that we like to do. But in preaching the gospel, many times we're lazy, we're disobedient. Sometimes we're so given over to materialism and pleasures. All all, all we're concerned with is keeping our stuff, having our vacations, enjoying our time and pleasure. We're so focused on our hobbies or maybe on our work that keeps our bank account full. Maybe it's secret sin that's keeping you. From being a proclaimer of the gospel. Maybe it's frankly just wrong thinking about the gospel, wrong thinking about God's mission to take the gospel to the world and why He saved you. He hasn't saved you so you can keep the gospel locked up here at Trinity Church. He saved you because He wants you to go out and take the gospel. And number four, the gospel mission will result in churches formed. That is, the, that is the result of gospel proclamation is that churches are formed. Here in Philippi, we have a new church in a new city, in a new region with a new team, with new team members. The result is the same. A church springs up. Have you considered who's a part of this church? Lydia. She's the one who, whose house is given over to the meeting place. Lydia is the one of gathering and hosting in her hospitality. Lydia and her household make up the church. Also the jailer and his household make up the church. Maybe the young woman who had been freed from spiritual and physical abuse, maybe she has come to the church and is part of the church. We know that these are at least those who are part of the church and then unnamed others are part of the church because of the gospel message being proclaimed. We see that at the very end. When Paul and Silas are getting ready to leave, do you see that verse 40? They went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And here a church has begun. A church made up of a woman and a slave girl, possibly, a Gentile jailer, who's probably also himself a slave. This is the church. And now they are enjoying fellowship and unity together, And the gospel has a new embassy in Philippi to go out where it needs to go. God is taking his message. It's going. It's being opposed, but those who oppose it will not win the day. And through the preaching of the gospel, he will bring his people to himself, and he will establish churches for the sake of his glory. We see this in Jesus himself and the mission of Jesus, don't we? Jesus was sent. Jesus was opposed. Jesus, through the cross and the resurrection, he prevailed. And in his name and by his blood, his people are marked And the earth is filled with his glory in his church. He is now our risen head, our leader, our ruler, our king. And we are his people. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for how you have committed yourself to taking your message forth. It is not our work. It is your work. And yet it is our work. We see that here, that you have called us to participate in this. And we know that you will not fail. We give you the praise and the glory for it. In your name we pray. Amen.